Hi there, my name is Peter Bale, and today I'm speaking with Josie Haynes, VP of Software Engineering and Head of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at Tile. Josie, thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. Hi, yes, I'm so excited to be here, Peter. Thanks for having me. Likewise, and I and I, I love the, this topic, thinking about, you know, empathy and inclusion in engineering leadership. So maybe to kind of start with the, the DEI and the, the inclusion part, <laughs> You know, in these COVID times, as, as we're kind of coming out of the, you know, c- coming out of the pandemic into the great resignation, why why is it more important than ever to be thinking as an engineering leader about DEI versus just letting HR take care of it? Yeah, well, unfortunately, we've had a little bit of what I call a diversity recession um, in the in COVID times. So while there's been the great resignation, um, if you actually look at the numbers, women especially are just leaving the workforce. And that is crucial. Um, you know, we're, we've hardly moved the needle in the last 20 years when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the tech industry. And it's very possible we're going to go backwards now because especially if we have women leaving leadership roles then women who are just getting into the industry are not going to have role models to look up to right and so it's a really crucial problem and obviously it's not just women it's also underrepresented minorities as well have been impacted much more um, by COVID you know and so it's it's crucial that if we really care about building diverse teams, which, you know, I think is so important, right? Um, You know, one of the things I tell people is, you know, we, we solve a lot of what I call our convenience problems here in Silicon Valley, right? Like, I can get my food delivered to me, I can get quarters for my laundry, you know, I can get pretty much everything. But like, where's the, I mean, and I know some people are doing it, but like, what if we put all of Silicon Valley brain power to solving some of these like crucial real world problems, like the economy, climate change, how we're going to have food, right? Water supply. And to do that, to solve those real world problems, we need diversity in tech because we need to understand what those challenges are. And if, all we have is groups of white men trying to solve these problems. They don't really understand all the challenges. And so this is why I feel it's more crucial than ever to be thinking about this. That makes sense. That's great. So is there a, a framework that, that, that the listeners can use to kind of start to think about how to organize and engage with diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah. So, you know, when I talk about this, I think about it under three pillars. So the first pillar is comprehensive DEI practices. And this is usually what people most traditionally think about when they think about diversity. So, you know, inclusive hiring, you know, reducing bias, potentially like bias training, you know, those types of things. The second pillar is having an inclusive culture. So things like ERGs, you know, employee resource groups where people mm-hmm. can thrive, right? And um, creating, um, you know, psychological safety, having, you know, values that your company, it truly abides by that really makes every person feel like they can thrive. And then the third pillar, which is the one that people don't traditionally think falls under the DEI ladder, is actually effective and fair management practices and principles. And 
the research shows that if you don't have both the first pillar and the third pillar, you're actually not going to move the needle in creating a diverse and inclusive team. And the reason why that third one is so crucial is really at the end of the day, we're the ones setting our team cultures. We're the ones doing the hiring, right? We're the ones making the calls on who is getting hired. And so, you know, it is so crucial to have those that leadership training. And yet, in the software industry, it is so common to promote your highest performing individual contributors to management and leadership with absolutely no skills in how to build inclusive teams. That's awesome. So I would love to to dive into each one of them to get kind of super granular and tactical. So let's say that somebody is maybe maybe they're at a point where you know they they let's say it's a startup. They raise their seed round. Somehow they've made it through to the A. They're starting to scale the team. Of course, they've got to go spend a bunch of money, hire a bunch of people, and maybe for whatever reason they they didn't take DEI seriously. They were just like, hey, let's just get product market fit and deal with it later, which is. <laughs> Almost never a good choice. Uh, So great. Your CTO, you've just raised your Series A. What are some of the things you should start to prioritize in terms of DEI practices? So first, get the inclusion part first, right? Like so many companies start with the diversity side of things and like, oh, let's increase our hiring pipelines. And it's like, like we said earlier, well, that's great. They'll walk in the door and six months later, they'll leave because the it's, you know, I call it the revolving door in the tech industry, right? Like, you know, the, the cultures do not support people to stay. And so I really say start with creating that inclusive culture, like get those core values around psychological safety, right? But creating a place where you know, people can call out bias and that's okay. And it's, you know, there's this uh, um, Kim Scott who wrote Radical Candor just released a new book earlier this year called Just Work. And I think it's amazing because it provides a framework for talking about bias in a normalized way. So she really talks about the fact that honestly, In your day-to-day, if you really were to step back and think about it, most likely in every meeting you go to, some biased thing might be said. It might not be a huge thing, but something might happen, right? And it should be okay for somebody to just call out and say, like, Oh, hey, I think I think that that might have been biased and and have it just be accepted and said, oh, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. And then just move on. Right. It doesn't turn into a 30 minute argument or discussion. You know, it's it's acknowledged and people realize, but it's by normalizing. Hey, yeah, this happens to all of us. Right. Like I talk about this all the time and I have biases. Right. Because biases at the end of the day help us, too. Right. Like the reason we have biases is because our brain wants to connect things that are quickly. Right. This is how we know how to walk without thinking about we have to put one foot in front of the other. Right. So our brain makes these quick logical connections. But we really have to slow down to think sometimes to ensure that we're not letting these biases into our day to day. So, and it sounded in some ways very similar to what you need to do anyway to create a high-performing engineering team in terms of like blameless retrospective psychological safety. Hey, somebody needs to be able to put their hand up like, I think I deleted something from production database. Yes. Be open because other, 
they've deleted it from the database either way. The only question is whether yep. you want to have an environment where they can tell you and it can become mm-hmm. a teachable moment or whether they're just going to hide it as long as possible and like take you know, all of their vacation and hope you never figure out who did it. Um, Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, it's funny because it's true. Like a lot of what I talk about under diversity, equity, inclusion, it's not like I'm talking about some crazy like side thing, right? These are all things that if you want to build a high performing team where each person really can feel like they thrive, like these are the core steps to that, right? So it's it's always really fascinating talking to people about these things because they're like, oh, yeah, I guess we should be doing that anyway. <laughs> well, and I love the idea about being really explicit about how you call out like microaggressions and bias in a way that presumably, at least for the first few times, assume good intent, right? It's, it's Yes. We may just have not come across that particular issue with pronouns or that particular piece of history that was triggering for that person because of their very different background. And to be able to be like, hey, just so you know, I personally felt offended by that. Let, let you know, let me just kind of highlight that. And if you want, I, I guess it becomes difficult because you don't want to put the responsibility on the underrepresented groups to be like, okay, yeah. you, you got to go explain why, why us, you know, old white men are bad, right? It's like they, they, they've already got enough jobs to do. So how do you, how, when you, how do you create a space that's safe for, for calling out microaggressions and bias without putting too much responsibility on, on the people who, who, who don't need that added to, to their list of to do's? Yeah. And so, you know, this is, again, uh, Kim Scott talks about this a little bit in the book. There's, you know, the person who was potentially impacted by the statement. Then there's a person who said the statement. And then there's all the other people in that room, right? And really, it's, you know, getting to the point where the other people in the room are also starting to just listen and be aware. And so it's not always the underrepresented person potentially calling it out, right? Like, it's much better if you have somebody else calling out like, hey, this is an issue, right? And so creating that space where people can say like, hey, I think that might have been weird. Like, can we talk about it later or something, you know, like, and and really just creating the space for people to feel okay, you know? So really it's, it's an opportunity for allyship and perhaps for Mm -hmm. people who are not underrepresented to just be thoughtful about this and wonder so that they can kind of call it out. And, but again, still blame free so that everyone can be aware of it and then move on with actually writing software. Exactly. Because like I said earlier, we, we all, have biases right like they're they're going to sometimes come out and like it's it's part of being human so if we blame people then we're just you know creating isolation and not the community we need to truly thrive that makes sense in terms of community and thriving are there other things that it's important to be thinking about to support underrepresented group within the workforce to make sure that they have the connections and resources to to help them stay and and thrive in the company? Yeah. And so this is where things like employee resource groups come in. You know, I I firmly also believe in like mentoring and sponsoring is so crucial um, where, you know, you, you really help 
create opportunities for them to thrive. Because, you know, one of the things I get asked sometimes, it's like, well, why is there like a women's ERG? Or why is there a black ERG? But why is there not a men's ERG? And, and I said, you know, like anybody can go create their own ERG if they want to. But guess what? Like, women and, you know, black people and people of color, like they have to prove themselves more to get the same recognition, the same pay, you know, yesterday was, um, you know, Latina equal pay day. So which meant October 21st, that is how long it took for people who are Latinx background to get equal pay from the beginning of the year. Like, think about that. Like, think about how far in the year we are for somebody to be actually getting equal pay. And so, you know, um, it, it's, it's interesting because so many times people are like, well, are you then just like lowering the bar, right? With hiring, like I get asked this question, like, are you lowering the bar? Or what happens if you have two candidates who are equal? And I'm like, I have never seen two equal candidates. So that's never a valid question. <laughs> like I've been hiring for 21 years. There's no such thing. Like I hate that question. It's like, well, if you have two equivalent candidates and one's underrepresented minority and one's a white dude, like who are you going to hire? I'm like, that's not like, that's not a fair question because like that never happens. They're, unless they're identical twins that did the exact same thing their entire lives or something, right? Um, and so, you know, it's really about hey, these people don't have the, uh, the same opportunities because of bias. And so that's why it's important to be spending the extra time, right? It's not that we're now privileging these classes, right? Like they already have a lot of struggles. It seems to me like there's a huge opportunity here too, right? At a time when we're trying to find any technical talent anywhere we can, the fact that there are underrepresented groups presumably means there are more people within those groups who could bring value and bring software engineering skills to our organizations. We just have to find them and then create a place where they want to be so that they can, they can thrive. And create a hiring process that's equitable and will get them in the door too, right? And so this is where that part comes in because so, there's so much bias and issues that can come up related to that hiring process. Are there, so if you were to have, and this is, is always a huge issue. So from sourcing candidates to effectively uh, determining competence in a way that, that is, is at least relatively unbiased, what would be like some hints and tips? Again, we've got this uh, company just got its series A, it's ramping up its engineering hiring. What are some of the things it can do both in terms of the ways that it, assuming that there is an inclusive uh, environment and that people will stay, how do you get the right people in the door and how do you select them effectively? Well, first, you need to start sourcing, not just on LinkedIn, right? Like, I, I think that's, that's like the first secret I tell people is like LinkedIn, you're, especially if you look at, you know, your connections and stuff, guess what? Your connections are going to kind of look like you and it's going to be hard to find the diversity you need um, when you, when looking at that. So 
find communities. There are so many communities for underrepresented minorities. There's alpha.com for women. There's Latinas in tech. There's Techeria, which is a Latinx community. There's the Black Tech Pipeline. There's Blacks in Tech. Like There's like spreadsheets that share all of these communities. And so form partnerships with them. Start getting to know the community members. Potentially offer to mentor or volunteer or partner with the organization. You know, if you're here in the Bay Area, look at uh, organizations like Tectonica, which finds job openings in tech companies for women and non-binary folks who might not even have a home or a stable living place, but is really trying to set them up for a career in tech through apprenticeships, right? And so first, it's about realizing that if you use your same sourcing pipelines and things you've been doing before, like, they're not going to just magically show up at your door, right? Like, (laughs) you, you need to go out there and find people. So that's, that's really the first thing. The second part is though, once you've found them, you need to make sure you have a process that will actually get them hired and through your pipeline, right? And so here is obviously where bias can come into play. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we all have biases. And so it's about creating processes that can reduce those biases or slow down our thinking so that we take those into account. So doing things like blind resume reviews where you take the names and the photos off of resumes because the research shows that if you give the same resume to the two groups and one has a male name and one has either a female name or you know an African-American sounding name, they are actually less likely to be considered competent, even if it's the exact same resume. Um, The next one is really creating a structured interview process where you're really focusing on what are the competencies that you're looking for. And one of the things that I recommend is starting with what I call an impact job description. And so the idea there is your job description doesn't just list the requirements, it actually lists the 30, 60, and 90-day goals for your employees. And the reason this can be helpful is, you know, women and underrepresented minorities will only apply to jobs if they meet 100% of the requirements, whereas for men, it's around 40%. And so if you just focus on having all of these must-have requirements, people might just self-select out of it. But if you clearly specify, hey, this is what we want you to accomplish, it's much easier to kind of see yourself like, oh, I could do that, or like, that's aligned with what I want to do. And then actually, it helps also through reducing bias through the rest of the interview process, because you can then use those 30, 60 and 90 day goals to really figure out, hey, what are the competencies I need for these goals? And then from those competencies, figure out, okay, what are the interview questions I'm going to ask for each of these competencies? And what does good look like? And what does bad look like for each of these questions? And then you can, instead of just creating like a one to four scale where you say hire or don't hire, you really are creating like a little evaluation list where you're really ranking each of the different areas. And that's much 
easier to then compare candidates or be like, oh, hey, like this candidate has strengths in this part, or maybe their coding is great, but their communication wasn't as strong. And hey, we really want somebody with really strong communication. It's okay if their coding isn't quite as strong, right? Like, that it's much easier to do those sorts of analysis and comparison if you're equi- like you've actually created equivalent criteria that you're able to rate somebody on. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so those are some of the things that I think about. And then actually you then take those 30, 60, and 90 day goals and use them during onboarding once you've hired the person. And you can use those during that first week uh, for those goals. And the reason that actually helps reduce bias is um, women tend to get less concrete technical feedback than men. And so if you start by setting those goals from day one, hopefully at the time the manager has to go give that feedback, they can hopefully still give the more technical feedback because they knew exactly what they needed to be evaluating against. That's lots of great advice. Another thing I hear sometimes uh, people talking about is the idea of like interview practice too, because for people in certain underrepresented groups, they don't necessarily get as many shots at bat. It's harder because there is um, prejudice in in other companies, so they don't get to interview as often. So even just allowing people to to do practice interviews can sometimes And having an... Yeah, and having an interview prep guide is also so crucial, right? Like there's no reason your interview process and like what you're evaluating people on has to be a mystery, right? Like give them a guide, show them like how to make, how to properly answer, you know, an interview technical question. Like what's it going to, what tool are they going to use to, to do the technical interview? Like what sort of questions are you going to ask them? Like help people, you know, interviewing is already such a stressful time. Like let's help, all candidates, right? Like, this isn't even about the, you know, this is about just like good hiring practices, right? Like, yeah. That's great. So so we talked a little bit about hiring and then bringing it back around to the, kind of that third pillar, effective and fair management principles. So uh, firstly, what would be some examples of that? What does effective and fair management look like? Yeah. So, you know, things like creating psychological safety on your teams, right? Making sure that all of your team voices are heard. And, you know, and part of that is really understanding that each one of your employees is an individual. And you need to apply empathy to really understand you know, what are their motivations? Like, what are their passions? You know, what are their fears? Like, you know, what find those vulnerabilities too, because part of your job as a leader is to help level up all of your employees as well as help them thrive, right? And sometimes you need to be able to really build that trust. It really does start with trust and creating a space where people feel they can speak up. If people can't speak up, then you're not going to get any inclusion in the, you know, people are just going to be talking behind their backs. And like, that's like the downfall to trying to create an inclusive culture. So uh, one of the challenges that often most engineering leaders were at some point in time, individual contributors. And the reason a lot of us picked the choice to be an IC and to write software was like, we like computers more than people. Uh, Mm -hmm. How do you help 
uh, effective ICs who do want to go on the management track, assuming you have the parallel track so they're not doing it just because this is the way to succeed. Assuming that somebody really does want to become a manager, how do you help somebody who maybe has spent most of their time, you know, fixing kernel patches, uh, how to actually engage with and, and support humans more effectively? Well, first, it's about starting with the motivation, right? So my first question, whenever I have, you know, an IC show up at my door and I say, I want to become a manager today, um, I ask why, you know, and it's, it's very fascinating what the answers you get. You can get everything from, I want more power to, I really care about people. I'm going to promote the people who care about people and tell the people who want power stay in IC. Like going into management actually means you lose a ton of power at the end of the day. It's all about influence. Um, and so first it's really about understanding like why they even want to go into this because a lot of times I feel people go into management for the wrong reasons. Like they don't actually understand what it really means to be a manager, right? They just think like, oh, I get to make the decisions now, right? And it's like, no, that's that's not that's not it. And then so once we, you know, first it's finding those people that really it's like they care about developing others. They really care about figuring out how to make that 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 effective product. I really talk about, you know, empathy as one of the foundations and frameworks for, for doing this, right? And at that point, it's really being able to, to slow down and being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, even if you haven't been through that experience before, right? And again, it goes back to something we were talking about earlier. It's like when each person you manage has to be managed differently because we're each individuals. And that's one of the things that makes management so hard if you're going to be effective at it is you have to realize it's a it's a people thing, it's an individual thing. And so I really really try to get people to think about how you can build empathy on a day-to-day -day basis, right? And a lot of times people think about empathy as this like vague thing. And so I try to bring it down to like, how can we make this concrete? So one of the things I talk to engineering leaders about is, okay, and you start applying empathy to code reviews and talk about it that way. And um, and so one of the things is like, okay, let's take in a code review, for example, right? When you're an engineer and you're writing a code review and putting it out, put your PR out there, a lot of times you're just like, I want to get this checked in and move on to the next thing, right? But you need to actually have empathy for the people who are going to review their code, because guess what? They didn't go through that same journey you did, right? Like they need all the context you had along the way so they can actually properly review that code. So the, the code, the person writing the code has to have empathy, but then the reviewers also have to have empathy for the person who wrote the code, right? Like, and again, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's always about starting with good intent. And assuming that our colleagues did something for an explicit reason. And so so many times I see comments and you know, code reviews or feedback or anywhere start with, why didn't you or why did you? And it's like, Anytime somebody says, why didn't you do this? Like you get into the defensive, right? Like, and so sometimes it's just about changing your language. Like instead of saying like, why didn't you do this? It's, oh, huh, this is interesting. I saw that this variable exists, but I don't see it used anywhere. Is, is, 
there a reason for that? And coming at it from that place of curiosity instead of an attack, it's very subtle, but it can make such a big difference in the empathy side of things, right? And so it's about breaking this down and making it concrete instead of just so amorphous in my mind. And then I'd ask, and I, and I think I know the answer from the way you're talking about this, but do you feel that empathy is fundamentally a coachable skill? Uh, or is this something that you you just kind of filter for for anyone on a management track? No, it's so, so something that you can build, right? And, you know, even myself, as I've grown as an engineering leader, like, I've been able to grow my empathy, right? It's, you know, and I was always a very empathetic person, but I know I'm much more empathetic now than I was before. And it's because it's something I think about. It's something I'm intentional about. And it's really about slowing down that thought process before you respond, right? It's about really taking the time to to sometimes just break that immediate response that you're going to have and be like, no, that's not, that's not actually going to move the needle forward. Like, how do I make this work? And how do I communicate this in a way that comes across as curiosity instead of an attack? That was great. Unfortunately, we're right on time. But Josie, thank you so much for taking the time to to share your experiences. Yeah, it was great being here today. Thank you, Peter, for having me.